Welcome to Cage Club, a Nick Cage podcast where we watch and discuss every Nicolas Cage movie in chronological order. This week is episode four, Rumblefish, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and I did not know this was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. I also didn't know that it was written by Essie Hinton, who wrote The Outsiders. I also didn't know that it was in black and white. I also I didn't know a lot about this movie. Filmed back to back with The Outsiders by the same director from a book by the same writer. They're almost companion pieces. They do feel like the same sort of movie filmed at the same time that Cage was filming Valley Girl. And when we were talking about Valley Girl and you told me that I was trying to figure out how we'd be able to do two movies at once, and I think we got the answer, and the answer is that he's just not in this movie very much. <laughs> yeah. He kind of is in the beginning, pops up toward the middle, and has, like, one little shot at the end. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. It's not like Fast Times, where he's on screen for, like, sec- like, a, like a second or two at a time. He's on the screen for, like, prolonged periods of time. He has lines, but he might actually be, like, in less shots in this movie than he was in Fast Times. He's just sort of in, like, five or six scenes. Like, he's not in very much. When he's in those scenes, he's in those scenes, and he's sort of one of the central characters. But he's just not there that frequently. Yeah, he's his presence is felt, and his character is significant. But, you know, you're right. Like, he is pretty... He's used, he's used sparingly, <laughs> but effectively. Cage plays a character named Smokey, which is a great name. He is introduced playing pool and he seems sort of like a pool hustler like he's really really good at pool so you know we talked about in the last couple of podcasts that he was king of the beach king of hollywood now it seems like he's king of billiards yeah he's got a big fat stack of money he's uh he just won a game against uh the main character rusty james rusty james sort of miss missed the eight ball shot and the eight ball rolls in front of nick cage and like pans up right to him yep. and you see him with the with the big comb back pompadour and and that his club jacket on and deuces wild his deuces wild jacket his hair again is great in this movie his little pompadour it's it's really big he looks like Um, he stepped like right out of like 1955 you know (laughs) he feels he feels like a blast from the past in in this movie you know like almost like he's from one of those types of street gangs exactly and that's sort of a good question that i wanted to ask you this movie came out in 1983 I wasn't really sure when it was supposed to take place. Okay. It feels like it takes place in the 50s or 60s, but then there's shots that just seem like they're happening like in, in the 1980s. Uh, what, what's your sense of when this movie actually happens? It's strange. I didn't do any research on that part, but now that you mention it, it seems to... The movie plays a lot with time as a theme itself, so it's almost like this town, it's like an amalgamation of different eras, right? Like, (laughs) different values between, like, the 40s and the 80s, like, all of them sort of just met and merged in this town in the middle of nowhere, Uh, literally in in Tulsa, Oklahoma, like, the middle of America, and it's just like this, uh, you know, melting pot of what is happening, you know, with the country, I suppose. But it's told in this, you know, very expressionistic, dreamlike uh, style, right? There's just... Right. 
it's it's very out there. It is sort of like the whole thing is dreamlike. There's, you know, dream sequences, there are death sequences, you know, fake death sequences where things are just a little bit off. And they never really explain why or, you know, really what's going on, but it just sort of adds to the everything's a little bit off. It sort of makes the audience feel as uncomfortable as Rusty James feels, that he's, you know, this character who has to live up to his older brother's hype and expectation and popularity and notoriety, and he's not comfortable doing that. And so he's just sort of, like, uncomfortable in his own skin. And we as the viewers are watching him do this, and everything's just a little bit off, and nothing is sort of explained why it's a little bit off. And it sort of feels like we're uncomfortable sort of because he's uncomfortable. Yeah, I get that sense, too, that the style definitely represents, you know, the, the state of mind of these characters. You know, they're ranging in the age, probably between the age of like 16 and 21, you know, so they're still pretty adolescent, you know, in their youth, right? And they have like a sort of skewed and warped perspective of life at that moment, you know, they're, right. they're still trying to figure out themselves, who they are, their image and how that affects people. I mean, we did, we've been dealing with these themes sort of from the last two movies too you know it sort of carries over a little bit but yep but here it's a lot more avant-garde so yeah so this is like the fourth movie in a row fourth of four where cage is in high school but it's a definitely a different kind of vibe like we don't hang out at the school they don't really talk about school it almost sort of feels more like a movie like brick where they're high schoolers but they're doing things that are more adult to a degree right there it's the gang culture and there's like a order to that, right? And uh, Mickey Rourke is even referred to as, at one point as like a prince. And, you know, he, he's like, you know, the kingdom is where they live. And there was a treaty between the two gangs when he left. And I almost wonder if that treaty was signed because he left, you know, like I'll leave town, no more fighting kind of thing. And they almost got like an Aragon type quality to his character once in a while. So they're making a bigger deal out of things than I think they should, right? Like, they're treating everything very seriously like they're adults, but that they're playing like kids. They're just acting like kids. That's a good way of pointing it, I think. One thing I noticed in this movie in the beginning and a little bit later is that there's, like, like the music is kind of crazy. I wrote down, it's sort of, like, I just called it Birdman music. It's <laughs> yeah. just like this, it's like this intense... Rhythmic like, kicking and... Exactly, like, especially that. in the beginning, like, they're just having a conversation... And there's this, like, music that's building and building and building. And then one character slams his hand on the table and the music just stops. The way that it crescendoed, it was just unnerving. Like, that was great. And I thought that it was really, really effective. And that's something that we really haven't seen yet, I don't think, yeah, in think- terms of the movies we've watched. Like, mu- mu- music is sort of, like, we talked about in Valley Girl, they're listening to music in their room. And they're sort of, you know, diegetic music or whatever. But in terms of just sort of music to amplify the situation... We haven't really seen that until this movie, and I thought that this movie did music really, really well. Yeah, it sort of had a benefit of being this art house type of film that was very experimental to begin. You know, it was going to be an experimental movie, so it was great that they incorporated sound the way they did, and that the characters almost interact with the soundtrack from time to time. And instead of music just sort of cluing in the viewer on on how to feel one way or another it's like inter- it's like more interactive than that you know it's getting you to feel a way instead of sort of telling you to feel a way so i guess one thing that we should talk about is do you think there's a reason why the movie's in black and white and do you think if there is a reason for that why the fish are in color the whole movie's in black and white but there are these fish at a pet store 
that uh, the characters come back to a couple times. And the fish are rumblefish, mm-hmm. which uh, when you shine a light on their tank, they essentially charge the light and will kill themselves. You know, a metaphor for what the characters are going through, you know, fighting themselves, battling themselves. Yeah. But the fish are in color, and nothing else in the movie is in color until the very, very end. There's some flashes of color uh, with an, at an, with, or during an altercation with cops. What was your take on why the film was colorized or decolorized the way it was? So I sort of have a before and after um, insight to this. Like I, I ended up watching some of the special features and listening to the audio commentary. But before I did that, I just thought it was going to be a, an art house type film. And, you know, those mm-hmm. are in black and white, typically, you know, stereotypically they're black and white films. And, you know, I think it was just to add to the obscurity of the reality that he was trying to create within this world. Right. But after listening to director's commentary and such, it's, it's because Mickey Rourke's character is colorblind. And he doesn't oh. have, like, usual color blindness. Like, he's, they, his, uh, Matt Dillon says, you know, he sees in black and white. And I think Matt Dillon wants to be his brother so badly in this that we see the world in black and white the way he wants to, the way that his big brother does. Gotcha. I don't know why that explains his ability to see the color of the rumblefish. Um, that could just be... That might just be the art house quality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I really liked is that, you know, we've talked about, or it's known that Nicolas Cage began his career as Nicolas Coppola. He's Francis Ford's nephew, is that right? Yeah, Francis Ford's brother's son. Also in the Coppola family is Sophia Coppola, who is in this movie <laughs> as this like, sort of like cute, but kind of also more so annoying little girl. Yeah, Diane Lane's sister. But she's credited, not as Sophia Coppola, but just as Domino. Domino, yeah. Uh, No last name, just Domino. So there's some behind-the-scene insight explanation for that as well. Can you explain that to me, please? Okay, so she didn't want to go by Coppola either. She didn't want that to be, you know, like a stage name. And also, she was doing it more as... Not a not not like a joke, but for fun. Um, Francis Ford Coppola sort of explains how this is like a like he puts his kids in the movie because they're like family films to him. Okay? So he wanted her in the movie, but she didn't want to be recognized, and so she created this alias Domino that she used a couple times. She's been in a few things around this age before she became a director. He said he wanted her to be Domino, credited as Domino in Godfather Three, but to her by then the. Sort of the mystique had worn off. I have like notes and comments about other things that aren't caged. There's just so much in this movie that he's not in. I mean, the movie is about Matt Dillon plays Rusty James, mm-hmm. who everybody, when referring to him or talking to him, calls him Rusty James. Nobody, as far as I could tell, aside from his principal, nobody ever calls him just Rusty. He's always Rusty James, which is weird. And he's not even RJ. They don't call him RJ or anything like that. And he's got a friend, BJ, played by uh, Chris Penn, of all people. <laughs> Chris Penn yeah. is in this movie. There's some names in this. Chris Penn, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Dennis Hopper, Tom Waits... The, you know, the guy at the diner, okay? Um, and Mickey Rourke, like, big names, Diane Lane, yeah. You know, a few of those people sort of share another link to this movie, and it's sort of, this is a little bit of a stretch. Uh, but later in, in the run of Cage Club, we're going to be talking about the documentary that just came out this year, The Death of Superman Lives, <laughs> I had What Happens. I'm sorry, um, I had, I'm sorry, I couldn't stop laughing. You could cut this No, part, it, no, it's, I it's had exactly, this, and I had this note. So this movie essentially has, and maybe I missed some, but there's Superman, 
there's Martha Kent and there's Perry White. You know, Martha Kent from uh, so Martha Man Kent, of Steel, right? Yeah, Man of Steel and Perry White, Man of Steel. It's just like this weird sort of like pre-Superman meetup of these three characters. Did I miss anybody else? Was anybody else in any other Superman movies? No, no, not that I'm aware of. There's not that many. There's not that many people in this movie. You know, it's almost like a play right. in a sense that there's like very few characters in in very few settings, um, and the settings you know reoccur. They go to the billiard club a, a couple times. They go to the yep. pet shop a couple times, and the rest of it kind of takes place just out out in the street. So it's just sort of weird that like three of the six or seven main characters um, were all sort of prominent or were going to be prominent Superman characters in one movie or another down the line. Yeah, and I, I especially loved how almost Clark Kent ended up with actually uh, turning out to be Ma Kent. Like, that yes. was kind of cool at the end of the movie, how they were in the last shot together. There's movies where a, 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 an actor and actress will play, you know, mother, son, or whatever, and then the next movie they'll be in a relationship together. I mean, this is a little bit different. They weren't in the same Superman together. You know, it would have been, you know, Superman and his mother, at, in, <laughs> some, in some sense, and except in this movie they're dating. Talk about um, Greek. Uh, they mention how, they mentioned the Greeks a lot in this. I wasn't exactly sure why. I think it's just another thing for kids to sort of think about after they watch this movie, like, oh, go check out Greek plays and stuff. But, you know, if uh, Superman did get with his mother, would there would be a Greek edge to that, right? Like, tragically Definitely. and uh, historically, as, as theater is concerned. Do you think that, talking about, you know, students in school and stuff, is this a movie or was this book that it was based on, were these school books? Because, I mean, like, this sort of is a little mature. I mean, there's, like, an art house sex scene violence, there's a lot of, you know, aggressive language or whatever. It's, it's sort of adult maybe, at least in comparison to The Outsiders. Like, I think I read The Outsiders, like, in middle school? I feel like this is not a movie that would be shown in middle school. I mean, you're a little bit older than me. Do you remember this ever being, like, taught on any level? Like, I didn't even know it was based on a book, let alone by S.E. Hinton. This one is definitely a little, has much more of a harder edge to it. The, I don't recall this being taught in school. I think it feels almost more of like a college level uh, situation. There's so much cursing in this movie. It's yeah. it's explicit. <laughs> it's crazy how much they curse. Uh, and I think part of that is just, you know, because to express you know, Rusty Jane's limited intellect, you know, he's almost like the dude in a way where like he has to curse to to fill a sentence. But uh, no, I don't I don't recall this being taught. I don't even recall hearing about this when discussing S.E. Hinton in you know English class in like ninth or tenth right. grade or whenever. Um, so it's sort of. It's almost Anti- like Outsiders for grown-ups. Yeah, in a way it is, right? It's for the next, like, Outsiders is for teens, this is for young adults, and then, you know, I can imagine there's, like, the next, like, the part three would be for, like, you know, late 20s, early 30-year-olds. You, you actually just reminded me when you were talking about that, about how Rusty just sort of fills the sentences with curses. Diane Lane has, I think, probably my favorite line in the movie, and it's not delivered for laughs. I don't think it's delivered. It's just sort of like an offhanded statement. Uh, she says to him, you're smart, just not word smart. You always try so hard to be like your brother, Rusty James. Hey, my brother's the coolest. Well, you're better than cool. You're warm. Yeah, but he's smart. You're smart. You're just not word smart. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, if you say, I think if you tell people, like, you know, you're smart, but you're not, like, book smart, like, that's sort of a backhanded compliment, but it's also sort of understandable. 
telling someone that they're not word smart is just almost like an insult. Like, there's not like a backhanded compliment there. It's just like, you just aren't good with words, like, which is the, the basic building block of communication. Yeah, it's sad, too, and it comes around again later on when, when he has a scene with Cage, and he tells him, that, you know, I want to talk to you, I want to communicate, fuck! And like, <laughs> they go outside and they try to talk, and, and Nick Cage ends up doing, you know, most of the talking, yeah. uh, but, you, you know, by the end of that scene, you do get a sense that Rusty James, you know, even though he's not good with words and stuff, like, he's still a good person, you know, even though he's dumb. Um, he kind of has like he reminded me of Rocky a lot to be honest with you like he loves to fight he looks like a young Stallone like he kind of has this drawl when he talks and stuff yeah, Stallone, like, and Stallone could definitely play this role like that's actually a really good I didn't even think about that that's a great comparison yeah Rusty James I wrote Rusty James Rambo look Dylan Stallone-esque and then I drew sort of a little picture of, of Dylan as Stallone in my notes it's definitely a role that, like, I guess Stallone probably would have been a little bit too old for this role. But if this was a movie like the early 70s instead of the early 80s, mm-hmm. I, think, I think he definitely would have been a good fit. Stallone wasn't in Outsiders, was he? He could have fit. Like, he, I feel like he belongs in this pack of actors, in a sense. Like, he's got that look and that street style and all that kind of... I, I don't, I've never seen him forever. Sort of like, an, like an early 80s... Well, I don't. Oh man, I don't think I knew all these people who were in the Outsiders. And I'm not get too far off track, but Matt Dillon and Diane Lane, both from this movie. Tom Waits again from this movie. Uh, but you also have Ralph Macchio, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise, Leif Garrett. It's crazy. Uh, it's C. like Thomas, C. Thomas Howell. Yeah, C. Thomas Howell's like the lead with with Macchio. It's just interesting that Cage has been in in or around these movies that um, have these list of actors who went on and off their separate ways to be big stars in their own right. Um, that he Definitely. he was there in the beginning, at, at you know, in the core around this group. I'm sort of surprised that Cage wasn't in The Outsiders, you know, considering it was directed by Coppola. But maybe, I mean, maybe he didn't want to do it. Maybe he wanted to sort of steer away from his uncle. Maybe he just couldn't do it. But I feel like he would have fit into that stable of young actors in the same kind of movie like we were just talking about. Yeah, he would have fit well as a jock or one of the... Uh, punks you know <laughs> either side of the tracks i feel like he could pull off that look from that era this movie and we were sort of talking about this before we we started recording but this episode is hard to keep a narrative structure going because the whole thing is so dreamlike um there's really not like a narrative or a plot to this movie the whole thing revolves around matt Dillon trying to live up to his older brother's expectations not being able to do it until the very end when when his older brother is shot and killed for stealing a fish? That's sort of the catalyst is his brother breaks into a pet shop and pulls the Pee Wee Herman move where he lets all the pets... Oh, granted, that pet shop was on fire. This one isn't. But he breaks into the pet shop and sets all, all the animals free. And the last ones are the rumblefish, which he insists on carrying to the river. But before he can get there, one of the cops shoots him dead for breaking and entering or personal vendetta not quite yeah that that cop sort of had it out for the motorcycle boy yeah it was almost like death or the grim reaper sort of you know over his shoulder uh they would kind of bump into him around town and he'd be like motorcycle boy you're going down and rusty james would just be like man that's my brother i'm gonna be just like him one day (laughs) (laughs) and maybe that's like like, you better hope to hell not That's like a physical manifestation of the motorcycle boy's future and Matt Dillon's future, Rusty James's future. The physical manifestation of that is the motorcycle boy. So they both sort of see what they're going to become or what's going to happen to them. 
and neither is really happy about it. Yeah, it's very interesting how there's duality plays out in this movie and there's doubles and stuff like i almost feel like rusty and and his friend steve are like two sides of a coin where rusty's like you know the scarred up idiot side and steve is like the polished smart side um and even when rusty fights biff the uh, the other uh, leader of the rival gang yeah like he's also blind he's also he's like a dangerous version of Steve, like the wild, unhinged side that Rusty has to conquer before they hang out for the rest of the movie. I don't know if... I I mean, the movie almost invites you to read into this as deep as you want it to, so that's just something I pulled from that. I really really wonder how much... Because unlike the previous three movies, I guess, I mean, Valley Girl sort of has its Romeo and Juliet ties and roots and foundations. But this is the first movie where you can really sort of interpret things however you want in a whole lot of ways. I don't necessarily, I don't know if like, like I almost sort of want to say it makes it like a smarter movie, but I don't know that it necessarily is. It's just sort of more angsty and you can just sort of interpret all these characters and their actions and their behaviors however you want. Yeah, I think it just makes it more interesting than the typical film that addresses these styles at this time. Like, like for instance, The Outsiders. Like, The Outsiders would be the very sort of straightforward way to tell this story, and, and this is the very obtuse way to tell the same story. The movie sort of begins, the first, like, third, or the first act of the movie is Rusty James talking about and hearing about his older brother, played by Mickey Rourke. And then Mickey Rourke shows up. And he's there for the rest of the movie until the very end when he dies. But sort of the middle third of the movie, the second act, is honestly just kind of Mickey Rourke espousing the wisdoms of older brother. Like, he just sort of describes things and talks about life. And it seems like, you know, Rusty James has never left this town. because He's still in high school, so there's not really, you know, any reason for, or any expectation that he should have left. But the motorcycle boy has left and come back, and he's seen the world. And he just sort of shares all this information with Rusty while doing other things. And so there's like, the, during this whole middle of the movie, there really isn't much Nicolas Cage at all, which is sort of depressing in terms of, like it makes <laughs> sense narratively, but in terms of what we're doing here, not necessarily the best for Cage Club. But one one of the things that Mickey Rourke tells Matt Dillon is, he, he describes California in a way that just sort of, it's all, a lot of this writing is you could think it's like it's it's so close to being like frustrating or aggravating or just like a little bit too high level you sort of want people just to, to sort of say things as they are they're a little always a little bit too metaphorical but he describes california in a way that i just love california's nice huh nice place california california's like uh yeah california's like uh Beautiful wild, beautiful wild girl on heroin. Who's high as a kite? Thinking she's on top of the world. Not knowing she's dying, even if you show her the marks. Yeah, it's Motorcycle Boy is quite the poet uh, under that tough guy exterior. Seriously. Um, and there's also some something to be said. You know, we talked a little bit about language in this movie, um, just the, not not like cursing, but the way people speak and stuff. And the people in Rusty James' family, his dad, played by Dennis Hopper, and his brother, the motorcycle boy, people around town think that they're crazy, like they're sick in the head and stuff. And his dad's like this crazy drunk, and I have my suspicions that motorcycle boy is a heroin addict or at least a chipper. Uh, and whenever Rusty James is trying to like talk to them, 
them, they just like, he can't understand what they mean. You know, it's just like not getting through to him. Um, so yeah. I think that frustration with the dialogue, definitely, you know, there's an intention to that and it worked really well. Uh, and also just on the, on the, on the tip that, you know, Cage sort of disappears from this movie for a while, but I noticed, you know, there's a lot of smoke in this movie. Oh, there's so much smoke. So much smoke just permeating it. And at one point I was like, you know, maybe that just, you know, it represents how Rusty James just is very short-sighted and lives, he can't see beyond what he's doing at the moment. But then I was like, no, maybe that's like Smokey being represented and like Smokey is looming large over this movie even when he's not in it. Rusty James sort of has to like, that's his rival and he's not even aware of it until the end. And uh, I don't know, that was just one of those crackpot uh, theories I came (laughs) up with for looking too deep. I feel like when you're watching a movie like this, like the crackpot theories are sort of the things that get you through some scenes where you're just trying to like find a deeper meaning or just, you know, think of alternate meanings or whatever. And those are the kind of theories that really, that that sort of prove like to be the best talking points about something like this yeah so so we don't really get to see um the the rusty gang i don't know what they call themselves exactly i mean i i imagine it's the um, wild deuces but only nick cage has has the jacket going on um, yeah. so i'm not quite sure what their gang name is but you only really get to see them do gang stuff like once or twice as a gang and once is that awesome awesome rumble in the beginning i really yeah, love the subway right yeah i just love the way that shot and the whole structure of that is just amazing but then uh, there's the other part where they break into like a lake house and <laughs> it's like Smokey's idea right he's like yeah Smokey, you always got the best ideas and i i can almost hear Smokey saying like we don't expect you to come up with any ideas. Like <laughs> someone's yeah, got to come up with, you're not the good idea. with words or ideas, right? Someone's got to do it. Um, exactly. And they like break into this, this stranger's house. You find out it later on. It's a lake house, but it's like this stranger's house and they just party there. They're like yeah. partying down with strange women that we we never see before or again. I don't know if my eyes deceived me, but I could have sworn there is um, nude cage in this scene. Oh man. I, I was, wasn't really looking for it. I was just trying to like kind of figure out what was going on and why it was going on because it kind of comes out of nowhere. It, it, it doesn't really pay off until the very end why this is happening, why we're spending so much time on it. But I'll have to rewatch that. I'll see if I can grab some screenshots. Maybe that might be a little bit weird for the blog. There's just um, a shot where Nick Cage and I'm assuming it's Chris Penn. They're on a table with some women, and they appear to be like I don't know what they're doing. They're do like massaging each other and stuff. And then we cut away, and then we cut back, and they're like pulling off someone's underpants, but you don't see their face. And I'm not sure who it was. I'm not saying this warrants an investigation. To <laughs> you know, don't spend too much time on this. But I just you know, it was a mentionable moment because um, yeah, it, it was just crazy. And so it's this really crazy. Like- like art housey scene nothing really sort of pays off until the very end there's this big scene at the lake house there's like this art house sex scene it just sort of ends they move on like you were saying we don't see these girls again you, you sort of think that like it's just a slice in the life of these kids and then all of a sudden at the end you realize that the whole lake house was sort of a setup by Smokey by Nicolas Cage so that he could steal Rusty James girl away from him 
and you know start dating Diane Lane. Amazing, you know that is just <laughs> what a, what a bombshell. Like I love that scene when they're hanging in the billiards hall and and Rusty James is hanging out and everything's good. And Diane Lane comes in and and he thinks they're gonna make up and she's like, oh, I'm like waiting for someone and and you don't even see the guy's face or nothing. You just see the expression on. Rusty James, and then the camera sort of reveals that it's Smokey, and I was just like, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah, like these movies where Cage isn't in it a lot, you're sort of hoping he's in every scene, but also at the same time expecting he's in none of them. So whenever he pops up, you're happy, and then especially when he pops up in this one, where it's such a pivotal role and such a pivotal pivotal moment, it's like, whoa, alright, this is, this is what I'm here for, alright, let's, let's dig into this. I would have loved to have uh, seen the movie before this movie where <laughs> Smokey was just, you know, Smokey had more of a role perhaps. <laughs> we could see the events leading up to why he wanted to orchestrate the coup and take over the gang and or at least, you know, I think he sort of ends up dismantling the gang by the end as well. And he also talks about and I think this is sort of where we're getting to the cage advice section. He he, he sort of talks about it to like to Rusty, like he just he just sort of like slaps Rusty in the face with like all these like insults and basically like you're not a good leader. People won't follow you and calls him out on it and like basically you're not your older brother. Yeah, he tells him you got to be smart to run things. You know, you can't you can't run a gang if you're dumb. <laughs> you know, you're gonna yeah. you'll get by on your name for a little bit, but people catch on quick and so the, the there's the real sort of the cage advice which is uh, the advice that cage gives someone where it's it's insightful and deep on a level that goes beyond most of his other dialogue here's rumblefish's cage advice rusty james if there were still gangs around i'd be president not you you'd be second lieutenant You know, you might have made it a while on the motorcycle boys' rap, but you ain't got your brother's brains. You've got to be smart to run things. It's nothing personal, Rusty James, but nobody would follow you into a gang fight because you get people killed. Nobody wants to be killed. Yeah, so as if as if that wasn't sort of insulting enough, um, it's it's great when the end of that shot, Rusty James is handing the pool cue to Smokey, sort of like he's, he's handing the baton over, saying he's like... Passing the torch. Passing yeah. the torch, saying it's okay, man. You know, I'm not, I'm not smart, but I understand. Uh, I accept this. And then Nicolas Cage, just to add insult to injury, like drops the pool cue in front of him and just yep. says like, you gotta be kidding me or something, <laughs> and just <laughs> walks back in to have his malt with Diane Lane. Exactly. And so then from there... I guess it's kind of the dark night of the soul for Rusty James, but he's not so broken up about it. And I think that's maybe where this movie falters a little bit. Like, he's the main character, but the one with the real sort of issues and the one with the real arc, kind of, is Mickey Rourke's character. So he just sort of goes and meets up with his brother, and they go back to that pet shop, and they break in, and they let all the animals go, and they steal the fish. Yeah, and then Mickey Warwick is shot dead in the park, and Matt Dillon, like, scoops up the flopping fish on the on the grass and like puts them yep. back in the bowl and he like walks down to the river and, and he puts them in the damn river. Uh, and then like the cops try to, to like um, handcuff him and he like smashes the police car window and the cops are like, let him go. That was his brother just got shot to death yeah. in front of him. <laughs> like, 
He just let him walk it off. Pretty much. That's the only other part of the movie where there's color, and I'm not sure why there's color there. Maybe because he's finally free, in a sense, of his brother. I think but as he's punching the car, the, the screen entirely goes to color, then it goes back to black and white. The siren on top goes red for a little bit and then goes back. It, it's strange. It's, it is very strange. It's as if... He sees he sees his reflection in the window of the cop car as he's punching it when it flashes color and it's almost like he can see a glimpse of himself like the way he should be in the future right like the way he's seeing himself for the first time but right. then almost in like this taxi driver esque moment it like cuts back to black and white you know like when Travis sees like his reflection in the rear view and changes the rear view so he doesn't have to look at himself it's almost like that type of moment where he sees himself for the first time and. And then, like, looks away, and the movie goes back to black and white for the rest of it. Yeah, and there's not much more. I mean, like, that's sort of like he gets shot, and then it's sort of the end of the movie. And then a reoccurring theme, the beach. It ends on the beach. It ends on the beach. Most Cage movies start at the beach, but this one ended at the beach. So this is a movie, so even though it's at the beach... Wait, so wait, what What beach is this? <laughs> I don't know, but his brother told him to follow the river to the beach. And that's where we find him at the end of the movie. His brother's like, you get out of here, take the motorcycle, because I'm motorcycle boy, and you drive and you follow that river to the beach. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's just being poetic, and maybe the river is just the highway, you know? And that's just like his beatnik way of communicating. But we see him at the, at the beach at the end. Yeah, like you said, it takes place in Tulsa, which is, you, you, you almost can't get farther from a beach than Tulsa. <laughs> yeah, it's completely landlocked. It's just weird. I mean, there, I mean, I, I don't know, it's but this is also... Magic. It's part of the magic, right? And like the, the unplausibility of the reality is just like, you know, he makes it, symbolically, he's made it wherever he needs to be, right? Like he'd made it to the mythical beach. Like he's sure. there on, on the shores of the future, watching yep. his, you know, destiny roll on. So he's finally free to, I guess, embrace his own future, a future free of the motorcycle boy, a future, a future free of the expectations that an older brother leaves on him, while Nick Cage is free to live a future with a beautiful young Diane Lane, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, he will probably go on to, like, like I said, dismantle the gang, right? Yeah. Um, and order will probably be, you know, semi-restored to the little town and things, you know, they'll go off to college, you know, start a family. <laughs> so really, in the end, everybody's a winner. Except for Motorcycle Boy. Well, well yeah, he's, kinda, I mean, he's dead. You kind of get the sense that he knows he's going to die, and that's why he came home. He, like, came home. He's like, there's nothing for me out there. The world, like, yeah, it's great for other people, but, like, I'm going to squander my life because everyone expects me to be great. So he's, like, coming home to die. It's really bizarre. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to show them. I'm going to die young. Yeah. So I think that pretty much puts a button on Rumblefish. There were, there were parts of this movie that I really, really liked. There were parts of this movie that sort of frustrated me. I don't know if this is a movie that you know I'm going to go back and revisit a lot, especially since there's not a whole lot of Nick Cage in it. Um, but would you recommend that people check this one out? I think so. Um, I really enjoy the style of this film, even if it's light on sense. Like It might not make a lot of sense, but I love the filmmaking quality to it. I love the shots. I love the acting. Uh, you know, I think it's... It's its own thing. You you know, it's very unique. You, there there are not very many American films like this. You know, especially from this time, starring major actors. Yeah, it's it's unique in its sort of combination of all these different things. Like it defines an era, even if that era itself is not defined by it, like a certain time. If that makes sense, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it, like an era, it defines, like, your age, you know? It defines that age you are at that time. Like, this is, like, teenagers, what they think, even the people, like, the the father, you know, what he's coping with during his age. I don't know. I'm realizing that this is a very tough episode, movie to talk it, about, you know? It, this is a really tough movie to talk about. But I think we did a pretty pretty okay job. Next time on Cage Club, we have Racing with the Moon, uh, a movie that I've never seen, that we talked about that you have seen at least parts of or, you know, a while ago. But what's interesting about this, and I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about after we watch it, Cage reunites with both Sean Penn and Crispin Glover. Oh, I was not aware Crispin Glover was in this movie. And he's also in the second, or the, the, the female lead, second build, is Elizabeth McGovern. She's well known for her role in Kick-Ass. So it's Cage's past and present, or past and future... Huh, more connections. More connections, more cage connections. <laughs> yes, that's... <laughs> so before we get going, uh, there's some exciting news to share. We moved off our existing Cage Club site, and we have a new domain. So it's no longer on WordPress. It is on cageclub.me, dot M-E. Uh, so it's the same look, it's the same feel, it's the same content for you, but there's a lot more possibilities of what we can do with this. Uh, the, the new site is hosted by webhosting.coop. Visually, the new site is not different, but there is a lot of potential for new features and new add-ons and stuff like that. So it should be really exciting. I'm really excited to have a new, have to have cageclub.me, and I hope you are too. I am very excited too. I look forward to um, using you know more sources of media to post more elaborate pieces about the movies that we watch absolutely now is there a way anyone could get in touch with you if for any reason they would want to get in touch with the show you can follow me on twitter at soul popped s-o-u-l-p-o-p-p-e-d and you can follow mike at the mikester t-h-e underscore m-i-k-e-s-t-i-r yeah, and if you want to, if you want to know more about the Mikester, you can listen to some of his uh, DJ mixes. Are they still available? Links to are, download. Links are on Twitter to the blog. Yes, links are on Twitter. So there you go. That was episode four of Cage Club. Join us next time for Racing with the Moon. <laughs> <laughs>